Hey everybody, welcome back to another Wiser Wednesday. Exciting discussion today with uh, John Ratliff, who's uh, CEO of Align5 um, and Scaling Up Coaches. Um, we're talking about scaling up uh, and selling up. So something that John's got a lot of experience in doing. Um, before we start, uh, I'm James Potton. Uh, I believe in a world of entrepreneurial success without burnout. Um, and the final word burnout being, I think, really important um, part of the discussion today. So, um, John, a little bit of background. You've uh, done stand-up comedy on the famous Carolines on Broadway, so I'm expecting a, a high-energy, fun discussion today. Uh, you also offered a scholarship for, like, bowling at, at college. Is that, like, 10-pin bowling or...? Yeah, ten pin bowling. I uh, I had two scholarship offers to college, but I was I'd talk about burnout. I was so burned out by then. It, you know, it was part of my life since I was five or six years old. And uh, yeah, I had two full rides, Seton Hall and Wichita State, and I turned them both down and and ended up retiring from uh, from ten pin bowling at the tender age of seventeen. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we'll have to have a game someday. So. For um, sure. So uh, yeah, it's um, it's it's. So I think you're based even you Philadelphia at the moment. Yeah, we're outside of Philadelphia. Yeah, Philly right, suburbs. Okay. Yeah, so we met in NECA in 2016. Um, we were doing like business brainstorming in the morning, sort of Virgin Unite and uh, and other sort of uh, concepts. You actually did some of the talks on uh, this sort of entrepreneurial journey. Um, I was kite surfing in the afternoon. Were you kite surfing then? I can't remember. No, not yet. I was not then, and I'm still not. But it's coming uh, this year. It's actually on my goals list this year. Excellent. I think your your is it your your daughter's my, been to my, my daughter's probably one of the best kiters in the BVI now. But I'm Amazing. just a cheerleader. I don't get to go. <laughs> Amazing. So. Yeah. No, I've seen seen some of your posts. So um, I really look. I've really enjoyed your honesty. Like when we were were chatting out and. When you were presenting out in NECA and like really looking forward to, you know, just getting in, digging into like, you know, that entrepreneur, there's something in entrepreneurs, uh, you know, I don't know quite why it's right. There's something that goes on. Um, so let's, let's dig into that. Um, you know, and this is also like framed with the sort of march of AI coming through. Um, it's happening so quickly. It's, 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 it's a really odd period. And, um, and it's what's interesting is people are either like waking up to it or people are burying their head in the sand. So, you know, what does it mean, um, you know, for what we do with businesses, you know, being human, all of those types of things. Um, so we're going to dig into values, purpose, passion today. Um, so if you've got questions, welcome to put those in um, uh, the chat and, you know, we'll try and answer some at the end. So look, let's um, let's just dig into your journey, John. Tell us about how you uh, ended up your entrepreneurial journey. How did you end up where you are now? So, <clears throat> you know, I was that kid in, in, you know, when you're 10, 11 years old, everyone says, what do you want to do? And I never said fireman or policeman. I didn't know the word entrepreneur as a 10 year old, but I said, yeah, I think I want to own a business one day. And my grandmother, God rest her soul, still uh, made fun of me all the time about that. You know, why don't you, why don't you find something normal like other people do? And, um, but I knew from an early age, you know, that was kind of the path that I wanted to take. So, you know, I, I had a little marketing company in college, and then I, I got out of college and did what most smart college kids do. I moved home and screwed around all summer. And finally, it was like September, and some friends had gone back to school, and I had a buddy in law school, went back to law school, and my mom looked at me and said, hey, are you ever going to get a job, or are you just going to, you know, sit around here and do nothing? So I ended up in, uh, I only ever had two jobs in my life. This was the second one, and uh, 
I was a commission only salesperson selling wireless phones back when like wireless phones were brand new. It was 1993. And, uh, and I, I knew that wasn't for me as an employee. I, I was working for a guy that really wasn't a very good guy. I didn't treat people well. And so I lasted six months there and then actually conned the, uh, the wireless carrier to let me open my own store. I didn't think you couldn't do that when you were 22. So <laughs> somehow they said yes. And I opened a store and then opened a second store um, soon thereafter. And in the back of that second store, there was a little, you know, old fashioned answering service, which was three people answering the phone with pieces of paper and pens and taking messages and <laughs> so the guy that I worked for two years later came back to me and, you know, I'd grown this business now to about 40 employees and two stores. And he said, Hey, have you ever thought about selling your company? And I was 24 at the time. And no, I hadn't, but uh, I made the classic young entrepreneur mistake and said, yes. And went down the path that we advise against today, which is having only one buyer when you sell your business and <laughs> being a terrible negotiator and all the other things. But he wrote a check and I'll never forget it for $103,000, which I was positive at the age of 24 was the best I was ever going to do <laughs> in my life. So I said, sure. Why I'll. the three? What was the three? <laughs> but I, I have no idea what, how we came to it. was a multiple of uh, of our recurring revenue. You, okay, back yeah. then when you sold a phone, you, the carrier paid you like 3% of everybody's bill every month. So yeah, it yeah. was it was, I think, two times whatever we were getting in every month from that or every year from that. So, uh, so I said, yes, I, you know, I took the, I took the check and then I realized I needed something to do the second classic, like sell your company mistake. What am I going to do next? And the guy that was my landlord with that little answering service in the back said, Hey, you should go open one of these in, in Delaware, which is the next state over and, you know, close to Pennsylvania. But back then you really couldn't compete. These little call centers couldn't compete outside their very local yeah. So yeah, I had nothing else to do. And I said, sure, that sounds like a good idea. I got hooked up with their vendor for equipment. And I did the third dumbest thing in my life, which was start a 24-7, 365 business with no employees. So I was the only employee. Um, I was answering the phones and cleaning the bathroom and trying to sign up new customers. And it was ridiculous. Yeah. But um, but yeah, that's way to learn, huh? Yeah, exactly. I had I lived in an apartment that was somehow zoned commercial with residential all around. And eventually we got busy enough. The phone would start to ring at night, you know, three, four o'clock in the morning. And so I was the only one there and I had to sleep sometime. So I had a big buzzer that I put on the desk next to my bed. And uh, when the phone would ring, this buzzer would go off and wake me from the dead and I'd have to get up and and I, I set it up so I had to walk about 50 feet to get to where you had to answer the phone, which hopefully was enough time to wake up out of a dead sleep. This was, I started in 95. This was by like 1997. It it was really bad. I don't remember most of 1997. I was so sleepy. <laughs> My neighbors loved me though, because the buzzer was going off all night long and the thin walls, they could hear it. So, um, <clears throat> so yeah, ultimately, you know, we, we started to hire employees and that business very slowly grew 95 to 2002 to get to a million in turnover, a million in revenue. And then in, in 2003, a buddy of mine came to me and said, Hey, have you thought about buying other companies? And meanwhile, I was just trying to hold on to the one that I had because it was <laughs> a disaster. 
I said, no, yeah. we don't have any cash. Like, we don't have any money. How the hell are we going to buy other companies? And he said, well, I've got a really good relationship with this local bank, and I think they might be interested. So long story short, we we built a relationship with the bank, and uh, we end up buying one. And then in a really funny story, another one 60 days later. And that really cemented our relationship with the bank. And then we did what we said we were going to do. We grew the way we said we were going to grow. By the way, when I say we, I mean me. It was only this <laughs> yeah, still you answering the phones and yeah, exactly. Now, now my mom did work for me. She would kind of answer the phone and and do our books. She's just write- the night shift, I'm sure. Oh yeah, no, she was day shift so that she could <laughs> rag me all day long. So she did our books, wrote everything by hand, and every day for about three years, I heard the exact same thing. John, this is the dumbest idea you've ever had. You should get rid of this thing. Every day, <laughs> three years. Even on the weekend, she would call and tell me that. So, we, so we're growing. In uh, 2003, we do our first acquisition, then our second. Um, we do another one in 04, and then another one towards the end of 04, a couple in 05. Long story short, we string together 24 buy-side acquisitions, uh, grow to about 650 employees, and then sold the company in 2012. Uh, and we sold to a strategic buyer. That was really the first experience I had with, you know, we were buying them for three to four times EBITDA, free cash mm-hmm. flow, basically. And we sold for almost 14 and a half times free cash wow. flow. So uh, we sold to a buyer that valued us over and above the cash flow of the business on a strategic level. And that kind of launched my journey into MA and Align five and some of the stuff we're going to talk about. So. Brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 so much in in that to discuss, and obviously you you've um you, you know you cracked the kind of code on uh a an industry where there's a high high turnover of staff. So you 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 know. Yeah. So I, I talked about um, and you'll hear the theme throughout. Kind of my discontent and one of my real moments of discontent was it was 2007 I think or 2008 and we were we were growing fast and I was very active in our industry trade group and then we had an equipment platform that we used that was probably the gold standard in the industry and I was really active on the users group for that equipment platform in fact I became the president of the users group we had about probably 350 or so members I think and there was a company in Canada that was almost a mirror image of ours, maybe two thirds of our size, but very similar. And I did what you do at conferences, especially with Canadians. I sat at the bar and had about 10 beers with uh, the other CEO. And on beer, like number eight, he said, uh, hey, do you track your frontline employee turnover? And I said, yeah, we do. And he said, what is it? And I said, we're about 115%, 115%, meaning we hire more employees every year than we have. And he looks <laughs> me dead in the eye and, and he goes, man, that's fantastic. And I said, fantastic. Like, what, what are you talking about? He goes, we're at like 125, you know, our industry average is 150 and we're both, we're both beating the average and we were well-run companies and he was a good guy. And wow. I felt like I was a good guy. And I, I, I said, why, why do we tolerate that? That's insane. So I go back, we were a scaling up methodology um, practitioner back then. Now I own the scaling up coaches organization. So I still believe in it, you know, whatever, 15 years later. But yeah. uh, so we went back and part of that methodology is a quarterly planning process. So 
normally with the, the team would come up with the, the objectives for the quarter. But in this case, I went back and said, listen, we have to get on top of this turnover problem. By the way, 115% turnover hourly employees. We had about at the time, maybe 400 or so. We had 100 salaried employees, 3% turnover. You can imagine what a fun place that was to go to work. <laughs> I mean, the hourly people hated the salary people and vice versa. It was toxic. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I said, we, we got to fix this. And that really started us on a journey towards culture, core values. We created a program called Dream On that I probably talked to you about on Necker, where we created like an internal make-a-wish type charity model, but for mm. our yeah, it's brilliant. Um, and it didn't happen overnight. In fact, it didn't happen over a year. But eventually, we turned the tide and we really learned about how to build a great culture. And and by then, it was we. I, I had a great senior team, and um, and they were, you know, they they executed a, a really beautiful vision around culture. And so our frontline turnover went from 115 at the you know eight beer meeting to uh, to 18 percent when we sold the company. And that was one of our, in the call center spaces, it was us and Zappos ever got to 18% yeah. turnover. It was, it was really a game changer. So. And having experienced, uh, you know, M&A, um, it is a, the hardest part is the people, you know, the, and, 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 you know, being through it like three or so times, like the most important thing I would now look at is what's their values let's put our values and their values next to each other and see like what, you know, is there any alignment here? Because otherwise this is going to be really hard. Yeah. You know, the, the it's M and a for mergers and acquisitions. There's no such thing as a merger. They're all acquisitions. There's, mm -hmm. we should drop the M it's silly to even talk about. You cannot bring two cultures together and marry them together and maintain two separate cultures. It's just impossible. So one is going to, supersede the other and you have to be really thoughtful about which one that is and i actually believe in the on the buy side and we i i believe it because we watched it happen so many times you know we bought 24 companies we got an arbitrage if we could find a company that was moderately performing so we would never buy a turnaround because i didn't one of our rules was we didn't fire people on the way in there was no mm -hmm. everyone's job was protected even if it was totally redundant with something we were doing, it was protected. So we would buy companies that were, you know, modestly performing, mediocre, I'll say. And almost every single one, at least 22 of the 24, and that's only because I can't think of all 24 at the moment, but had kind of mediocre culture to go with their mediocre performance. Yeah. We learned pretty quickly how to install our culture right away for the front line, especially. And just by changing the culture, we would, we would be able to extract 10 to 15 more points of margin without making any other change. Amazing. And we learned really quickly that our, one of our core competencies was arbitrage from improving company culture through acquisition. So we didn't, we didn't set out to do that. It was sort of an outcome that, that happened, but it was a powerful one. You know, if you can buy a company for four times EBITDA and improve the margin 15 points, now all of a sudden you paid two and a half times EBITDA. And that's that, you know, you do that 15 or 20 times and it, it really stacks up. Yeah. Amazing. And, and you know, in some respects, it's through um, this 
I suppose, innate drive in you to to want to give, you know, the make a wish kind of model is a, um, yeah, talk, you know, talk to us about so we, that. What What is that, yeah. it, it, that, that route? Yeah, so we, we obviously both know Joe Polish from Genius Network. It's how we ended up on Necker, probably in the first place. Yannick Silver and Joe would run that trip. Yeah. And I did an interview with Joe about culture and, and it was, I mean, it, it was one of those that you get, I was, we were almost to the end. I'm like, wow, this is, this is really going great. And Joe, if you know him is a total smart Alex. So, <laughs> so we, so we get to the end and, and Joe says to me, Hey, John, all this sounds great. I, I totally resonate with all of it. And I'm like, Oh, good. Here comes the softball wrap up. And he goes, but what if you just don't like people? And I was like, all right, you bastard. I know what you're trying to do here. Um, and I thought about it for a second and I was going to make a, you know, cheeky remark. And But instead I said, Joe, actually, I know you're trying to be a smart aleck, but it's a really good question because not everybody, and I, I'm one of them, I'm an introvert. Like it's painful for me to be extroverted with people. But here's here's what I think as an entrepreneur is not only our privilege, but also our responsibility and our right. So, and this is an audience of entrepreneurs, so I can say this. I normally don't say this if I'm speaking to audiences with lots of team members and stuff, but we've built a vision for our business. We have chosen the really hard and lonely path of entrepreneurship. Mm. And the fact that people show up every day to take our vision, because we can't do it by ourselves, especially, you know, as you scale to take our vision and put it out in the world. You don't have to like them, you don't have to love them, you don't have to you don't have to be super extroverted and and you know have this altruism where you want to give. But man, you have to respect the fact that they showed up every day to help you. Mm-hmm. And that has to make you deeply grateful even if you don't like them. You have to be deeply grateful that they're there to drive your vision, not the other way around. So it's your responsibility to do anything you possibly can to make their experience better, to recognize the fact that they're there to help you. It's like the simplest formula in business, yet it's one of the most misunderstood. And I had to get smacked upside the head a bunch of times to figure it out. But, you know, now my goal is to help other people figure it out without going through all the pain. That, that <laughs> yeah. Well, in the, in the, in our, in the environmental consultancy, it took us, yeah, six years of not doing it right to then get it right the next six years. And it was it was literally the point that we started focusing on, on culture and, um, you know, actually working out that purpose mattered and all these kind of things that don't necessarily, you definitely don't get taught it anywhere. And it only starts to make sense once you've experienced what it's like once you get it right. Well, and it's not on the balance sheet. So if you're, you know, if you're financially oriented, it's hard to see. I had one of my one the the guy that said, "Hey, I've got the bank relationship." One of my best friends, I was the best man in his wedding. He's a CPA and he's a CPA that really kind of fancies himself as an entrepreneur because he started his own practice. But at, at his core, he's a CPA and 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 type A driven guy. And when we sold the company, he had equity in exchange for helping us with our acquisition strategy. And with tears in his eyes at our exit, he said, you know, the, the greatest lesson you ever taught me is not everything shows up on the balance sheet. And there is a return for spending the extra resources and treating people the right way. 
And he said, 10 years ago, five years ago, I'd have never believed that. I mm-hmm. never, ever would have. And it, it changed the way he practices accounting to this day. So the old um, adage that they know the uh, the cost of everything and the value of nothing, huh? Exactly. And, you know, here here's what I'll say. I, I've And again, through our work, through scaling up, we see thousands of companies, successes, mostly successes. We feel like the methodology works well, but failures as well. And I've seen lots of mediocre culture companies succeed, right? You don't, it's not a, it's not a yes or no, a black and white option. You can, you can, you know, kind of go through life and not really care and have subpar culture and, and gut your way to success. You can also go off the cliff and fail, but it's hard to think of a lot of examples of companies that nailed culture, nailed core values, nailed purpose, had a team of people ready to run through a wall that failed. And yeah, of course there's examples. There's Mm -hmm. always outlier examples, but why not stack the deck in your favor for success? It's not, it's more being thoughtful than, than it is resources and everything else. I know that every dollar we ever spent on driving culture returned itself but we got tired of counting because it was exponential, at least yeah. 10x, 20x, 100x. I don't know, but way more than negative. So why not? It's just a little extra time and effort and, and creativity to drive great culture. It stacks the deck so much in your favor. It's crazy not to. Now, one caution, and this is super important. <laughs> you can't fake it. You have to be authentic. So if you're going to put in the foosball table and the, you know, the nice coffee and the snack bar, but you're going to wake up every day and be resentful of it all. People that were mediocre engaged yesterday, if they feel like you're trying to manipulate them into thinking there's a great culture when there isn't, when you really, they know you don't care because they can see right through your authenticity. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yesterday they were going to be mediocre engaged and kind of care, kind of not, give you some decent effort. Today, if you're trying to manipulate them and they think that, they're going to be engaged, fully engaged in making your life a living hell (laughs) back for the manipulation. So don't do anything at all to drive culture unless you really believe it's your responsibility. So it's a mindset. This is so important. I, I can't tell you how many times I've watched people try and fake it and it blows up in their face. And then they come back and go, ah, that culture stuff doesn't work. Yeah. Like, no, no, no. You didn't work because you didn't believe it. So yeah. mindset and then activities, not the other way around. Yeah, yeah. No, I completely agree. I think that there is something in it where we did find that we set out a vision for where we wanted to go, but we we were honest about the fact that we weren't there. And that's okay. If you say this is, you know, we know we're not there, but this is what we aspire to achieve. As long as you can have that honest discussion, then it still works. That's the key word. You were honest. Like people love when you're vulnerable and authentic. Like our culture sucked. We had 115% turnover. (laughs) We launched all these programs. We we didn't say, hey, it's great. You can remember everyone's name in the business, huh? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like it wasn't going to change overnight, but we were, you know, we fell on the sword and said, hey, we understand. It's not very good right now, but give us a shot to fix it. So So this. There's also, um, I've taken quite an interest in almost like the shadow side of of things. And there is a shadow side to to giving too much. You know, what's what's your views on that? 
So, yes, I totally agree, but it goes to another. I have a lot of rants I've learned as I, I'm <laughs> 52 now, and I feel like I've earned the right to rant, I guess. I don't know. Maybe not. But um, absolutely. Like, one, of, we only got sued. We, we had 650 employees when we sold. We were in business for 18 years. We had lots of turnover. So you can imagine in the beginning, you can imagine how many total employees we touched throughout our entire kind of life cycle. We literally got sued one time and it was about six months before our exit. And it was a class action lawsuit by a piece of garbage attorney that had a practice suing call center companies from a law from 1930 in the US where miners didn't get paid for the 30 minutes to put on their mining like gear. And he was able to fast forward and use this stupid law. And they literally identified a four minute window where our system took a little bit longer to log in. And he thought it turned out we were paying him for that four minutes. But <laughs> so we get this, we get class action sued it was the only class action that this judge had ever thrown out. Um, Cause mostly, most of the time class actions always kind of get to at least the point where they get heard. But one of the four people in the class was someone that had been given this amazing dream through our dream on program. And, you know, a couple of people on our team were really, really like sideways about it. Mm. And it goes back to the rant and, and, you know, something I think super important. If you can get 70 to 80% of your people fully all in, like totally engaged and ready to run through a wall, that's enough. And it's going to do two things. One, you're going to have this group of people that are, are going to take the company to places you never thought it was possible. But two, they're going to repel the other 20 or 30% who will eventually leave, which was one of the people in this class wasn't a good culture fit. Our culture drove her out. And yeah, she was a little bit resentful about that, even though she had been part of it through the Dream On program. Mm. So my rant is, you can't have a rule, a policy, an idea, like it, you've got to focus on the 70 or 80% that are, are really deeply engaged. And the shadow side of it is don't resent the 20 or 30 that are never going to come along. And that that's probably a little bit aside from what you were thinking on the shadow piece. I, I do believe it can court narcissism in the, in the entrepreneur. You start to become like, oh, you did this and you did this and you did this. And so for us, like when, when we would get lots of media requests, I would normally have someone else on the team do that. So we really tried hard not to get full of ourselves about these programs, but more importantly, focus on the 70 or 80% that you can help and, you know, it, don't get wrapped up. It, handbooks is another one. If you've got a company handbook, go back today. I, this is my challenge to everybody. Go back today and read your handbook. I thought you can say set fire to it. <laughs> Not well. And if it's, first of all, if it's more than five or six pages, it's way too long. But more <laughs> importantly, I want you to take a highlighter and anything in the handbook designed to address the behavior of less than 20 or I even like, or 10 or even 20%. So anything that's aimed at the bottom 10% of your workforce, like your weird attendance policies and all sorts of just get rid of it. Yeah, that's really good advice. It can you're get not so going to change their behavior anyway, and you're going to piss off your A players. Like, what are we in kindergarten? Like, it's a hundred page handbook. No, no shit. I'm supposed to come to work on time. Like, thanks for <laughs> telling me that. Like, 
It's really so, good advice. Yeah. Burritos are present everywhere. So yeah, focus on the 80%. 20% yeah. of the time on the 80%. So if, yeah. I was also thinking around your, you know, look, I mean, there's also if you like if you're someone who tends to give, it can like lead to burnout, you know. Talk us through some of the challenges you've experienced sort of on your journey. Yeah, and it's still, I mean, it's still happening today. I it, it sounds super weird to even say it, I, but I do believe there's in the world, and I think this came from my parents, certainly, and definitely my grandmother, but there, there's you can really bisect the world in two parts, givers and takers. Now there's grades on both sides. And I question whether if you're on one side, can you move to the other? Both ways, giver to taker and taker to giver. And yeah, if you're on the giver side of the equation, you open yourself up, you're vulnerable to being taken advantage of. Mm. And that's been a challenge for me recently and back then as well that, but I can't give up. I, I always say, after someone takes advantage of me, I always say, that's it, I'm done, like no more. But it, you're wired, I think, one way or the other. Now, if you're if you're like close to the middle, I think you can cross the chasm from like casual taker to maybe casual giver. But <laughs> I don't know if you can like really move. Maybe you can. I, I'd love someone to prove me wrong. But it's still the right way to be. You just have to steal yourself to the fact that you're going to get screwed over every once in a while. It's, it sounds I, I similar to the hawks and doves model where, yeah, ultimately, and like in nature, like cells group together to, so, you know, ultimately hawks can't stay in a community for too long to the doves group together and eject them. And, you know, it, yeah. it, it it's their repeated behavior is to just keep moving on. And um, yeah, I think cells do it as well. When a bad cell enters, you know, the other cells group together and eject. So it is a, there's something just innate in nature that that yeah, and diversity is what keeps our species going. Like if everyone were givers in the U S you probably don't do this in the UK, but in the U S we have these four way stop sign intersections where everyone comes to the intersection and whoever got there first is supposed to have right away. Well, in a world full of like total givers, no one would be able to go through the intersections, right? <laughs> you go, no, you go. It's a bit more of a Canadian uh, way, yeah. isn't it? The, uh, the givers. Yeah. I, I think was... Sorry, sorry, <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, so, you know, I, I do think you definitely need diversity. But as, a, as someone that identifies as a giver, I guess, you do open yourself up to being taken advantage of. But it's kind of the the price you pay for all the good that comes with it as well. Mm. So, yeah, yeah. So you you've um uh, you know we've we've you talked about this um before in the past. You've sort of made it your mission to talk about like mental health and and, and depression and and it's something that really isn't talked. It isn't. It isn't. People. It, it like things are opening up for the discussion, but it's still yeah. quite it's quite difficult to acknowledge. So yeah, I'm, I'm you know you're you're you you're really uh, i'm inspired by your willingness to to talk about it so yeah yeah and and again it goes back i think to responsibility so and i think when you and i were together last versus now the conversation's become a lot more robust and it's become a lot more appropriate to talk about we still have a really long way to go i feel and it's there still is a stigma attached but some of that stigma is starting to get chipped away my my story was was pretty straightforward, the story that you heard me tell. I And as a sidebar, I think for this audience specifically, I think 
part of what predisposes us to be entrepreneurs is we're dissatisfied with the status quo. Like mm-hmm. we see a situation that we know is out of balance and we need to fix it. Or we know that maybe we're not wired to be part of somebody else's vision. We have to create our own because we're we're a little bit discontented. So I think there is a self-selection issue in entrepreneurship and all, all the research somewhere between 65 and 85% of entrepreneurs battle depression on some level. The suicide rates are really high and mm. all sorts of, you know, there, there's a lot of data around entrepreneurs being highly ADD and, and prone to depression. So yeah. starting from there, which I wouldn't have known what you're on about until I started to notice that I definitely have like this sort of ADD traits. I'm like, Oh my God, like what it, I had, cause I couldn't sit down and read a book. I, I could only, I listen to audio books because I just can't, I don't have, so it's, yeah. it's really weird when you start to notice it, you're like, uh, so, so having kids teaches Hall- you as well that, cause you sort of see them and you're like, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So Ned Hollowell is one of the leading writers globally on, on ADDs written 30 ish or so books. And Part of the reason he writes so many books is because he'll tell you he's severely ADD and that's one of his coping <laughs> mechanisms. Um, but Ned actually is is campaigning to change the term from ADD and ADHD. He wants to call it the entrepreneurial trait. Literally, like that's how he sees it. So there is a lot of science behind ADD and and the desire to be entrepreneurial. But for me, my my situation, as far back as I can remember, at least as a 12-year-old, um, I battled depression. And I didn't know what it was at the time. And the way I experienced it to this day, really, is it's kind of like a blanket. And I wear it all the time. Sometimes it's really heavy, but sometimes it's really light and you barely notice that it's there. But it like kind of stays with you throughout the, you know, throughout the time. And my funny story was I went to a mastermind group with Joe uh, Polish in Phoenix. And, you know, a lot of times they would put like stuff out, you know, when you got there, books and, you know, like a gifts or snacks or like stuff. And they'd be at your, you know, at your seat when you arrived. And so I get there and, and at my seat was a copy of The Untethered Soul written by a guy named Michael Singer. And I looked at it. Now, one of the, and I was in a, like my depression went in cycles. I was in a pretty severely like low point in the cycle. Um, So the blanket was heavy. I'll just say that. And one of the things that would happen in those cycles was I would lose my ability to read kind of like what you just said with ADD. It would like, it would like hyper ramp up. Mm. I could read literally like a page or two. Then the words started to look weird and my brain wasn't working right. And to the point where I almost had an MRI because I was convinced I had a brain tumor because I couldn't read, which, and I'm a learner. Like that's, you know, at my core, I'm a lifelong yeah. learner. So not being able to read, and this was before audiobooks were really like super prevalent, was problematic. So I I, I get my, I get the book, I shove it in my briefcase. And um, so I'm on the flight home and I happen to look down at my briefcase and I see the book poking out. And I'm like, I pick it up and I I open it and I read like a page, two pages, three pages. And I'm like 20 pages in and I, I have the revelation. I'm like, oh, look at that. I'm actually able to read. I don't know what the hell's going on. <laughs> so I get to like the fourth or fifth chapter and Singer talks about, and this, this was the moment that I shared on Necker. And I think, again, I think it's my responsibility to share it forward. Singer talks about when 
when we're biased towards depression, oftentimes what we do is instead of processing negative experiences, we don't want to, we just don't want to feel them and face them. So we like shove them down, like pack them in so that we don't have to deal with them. Mm -hmm. And he, he talks about them as actually having physical properties. Like they physically exist inside your nervous system. And, you know, his method for, and he's a, but by the way, Michael Singer is a mindfulness guy. Like he's one of the leading thought leaders on mindfulness. So his method for dealing with it is he's like, you just kind of relax and like lean away from that negative, re-experience it, process it, and then let it go. And like, just imagine them like going. I'm like, what the hell? I got four more hours on this flight. I'm sitting in first class on American Airlines and yeah, I'll give it a shot. So I lean back in the seat and I like start to like, you know, process some stuff and then another. And then he talks about the other thing is when you've crammed all that negative in, like positive energy kind of flows into you, but it can't, it's blocked by all your negative. So I'm like, yeah, whatever. And so I process one and then two and then three and they're like kind of coming out. I'm like, oh, this is cool. Well, all of a sudden, like I get like, you know, when you stick your finger in the light socket thing, like I'm like buzzing with this energy and <laughs> I'm like, like euphoric almost. And then I realized there are like tears <laughs> streaming down my face, kind of like when they like drip off your cheek style. Then I look around, I'm like, oh my God, they think I'm going to like probably take this airplane down. Like I'm a terrorist having my like final moment of like release. And then <laughs> I look like a hot mess. So I had sunglasses on on my head. I actually put the sunglasses on, but that feeling like overwhelmed me. And it was just this like, like almost like a glow or like a buzz of euphoria. And I felt like I got, I processed all that stuff and I got rid of it. That literally stayed with me for weeks, like weeks. I was afraid I was going to lose it. Like I woke up the next day and it was still there. And like, I can even access it now, like kind of thinking about it. But that was the moment where I, I realized that, yeah, like holding all that stuff in is, is really holding me back. So mm -hmm. statistically on, on this call, I know there's, you know, a, a lot of people, there are people on this call right now battling depression. There's probably people on this call that, have either contemplated or are currently contemplating suicide, I strongly recommend, and I've made this recommendation now to tens of thousands of people. I've told this story on stages in front of a thousand people. And I get people that come up to me that I've never met all the time. Like it happens at events and, and a lot of places I go that say, hey, that book really changed my life. So the book's called The Untethered Soul. It's a guy named Michael Singer um, for what it's worth. But mm. it, just know that if if depression is part of who you are and it's been a, a lifelong struggle, it's also what led you to entrepreneurship, most likely, or or at least it's part of your journey. And the more you can integrate it and embrace it instead of just trying to hide from it and and talk about it. Um, you know, I, I think there's power in sharing the story. So and I feel obligated to do it. Yeah. I don't like doing it, but I feel obligated to do yeah, it. Yeah, no, thank you, Jonas. I think it's really important. I mean. I guess, you know, it, it, it's a, a, another one of your, you know, sort of phrases or we all know as in entrepreneurship is lonely at the top. So there isn't, they often don't feel like there's people that you that you can relate to or people that understand quite what you're going through. There's just, you know, an expectation of the answers, which is um, <laughs> yeah. bonkers, utterly bonkers, but the reality of um, the position that we sort of hold. 
Well, and it's compounding too. I mean, most of us grew up, I, I've got really close friends from childhood and one's a lawyer, one's a school teacher, uh, my two closest friends, lawyer, school teacher, and lots of other professions. But I don't have a childhood friend that I grew up with or even a college friend that went down the entrepreneurial path. So that I'm like a cartoon character to them, right? I mean, and I've had good success and we've got, you know, some fun real estate and stuff and we go and hang out and have fun. And, but they, they literally like, and it, you know, I laugh about it too, but they, it's, it's really hard to find a peer group of, that's why it's so important. I think masterminds are great. And like to find a peer group of other entrepreneurs that you can just get around and, and know, even, even if you don't share your stuff, even if you can just listen and know that, hey, you're not totally alone. You're not the only dumbass that that made that mistake. That was the yeah. greatest. I told you I was really active in my industry. Up until then, I wasn't active at all with any other entrepreneur. So I spent eight years thinking I was a complete moron because I couldn't figure any stuff out. And I had employees quitting. And I mean, I had every bad problem you could ever have. And then I got around other entrepreneurs and I was like, wait, you have these problems too. <laughs> and it was such a, now nah, we're, we're way more hyper-connected today. This was in the nineties when, you know, we didn't do this kind of stuff. Yeah. But, you know, Still being wins. around others that are going through the same journey. That's part of the human experience. We don't do it. I don't think we do it enough. Yeah. No, I like making time for it. It doesn't seem like the, the thing that's, it does it 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 feels a bit indulgent i guess it doesn't feel like it's going to help you but the 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 release it has you know i i credit like the fact that i was you know 2012 i was getting an ulcer couldn't handle like the we were going through a rapid growth period actually sort of solved the problem i stepped into the md role we went from like 2.8 to 8.9 mil turnover in in one year like how to solve that is a very like that's a it's a lovely problem to have but it's a it is a bonkers place to be and i was i still had that i hadn't grown out of like the control need i hadn't gone through that sort of evolution of understanding that you know the 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 sort of you know the net at the of top of the bottle and it's like i was constraining the business and um yeah a, a number of things like like OKRs and just like trying to get everyone knowing what they want to do but my own personal mindset of going on that journey I couldn't have done it until I met like a mass of my group so yeah uh, and if we're in the full confession role today I it's embarrassing but I was so there was a point in time in my company it was right before we started to buy other companies um so probably I don't know 2000 was after 9-11 so it was probably 2001 or two like late 2001 early 2002 I was so burned out and so depressed and so checked out that I did not show up I lived 10 minutes five minutes eight minutes like a couple miles from my office I did not show up in the office for five months and I let a heroin addict and I mean a heroin addict run the business knowing that I was letting a heroin addict run the business for five months, a frontline employee who also sadly, and actually not sadly because she's thriving today. We, we helped her with that and she's completely like a rock star today. But at the time that's who ran the company for five months and I knew it. 
And I just, I couldn't bring myself to go in. I couldn't get out of bed. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a lonely journey and it's okay that it's a lonely journey, but you want to be around other people yeah. that have been down the path. So, so um, sorry to tell you know, with line five, it's really nice because I maybe in 2016, I maybe it was one of the sort of, um, you know, dips. It feels like you've got your mojo back with a line um, five and um, it's really nice to see. I've been seeing your, your content come out and, you know, you're, you're running stuff so what what do you think uh what do you see the best entrepreneurs do to push through the kind of one meal barrier and sort of truly scale what 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 is it that they do yeah and you know i hate simplistic or over simple sounding solutions but i think one of the most elegant and important ones it's like it's so simple people don't even take it seriously but the first step on the journey for me and for thousands of other entrepreneurs I've seen do it successfully is a daily gratitude practice. If you can find the three seconds it takes every morning, I don't care if it's in a journal or on your phone, or even if you just put a sticky note on your mirror, but three things you're grateful for every day, start your day at least in the right mindset. Now you might get to the office at 8.15, get kicked in the face and by 8.30, you're, all, you know, you're already kind of out of it again. But so that's, for me, step one. And then, and then what's really helped me on my path, A, being around other entrepreneurs is always, I mean, that's I still go to Necker, and, and that's part of why I go. It, yeah, Richard Branson's there, and strangely, Richard and I have become, I don't know how or why or how it even happened, but we've become pretty close but I don't go for that. I go to be around 30 other like-minded entrepreneurs that are somewhere on their full circle of their journey. Mm-hmm. And I get energy by watching them. And, and now I feel like, you know, it's the whole sage, elder, statesman, whatever happens when you get older, you, your kids are young. You don't even know any of this yet, but <laughs> you reach a point where you start to feel like, yeah, I have experiences that I can share with other people. And that energizes me. Like if I, somebody early on for me when I was really struggling, like in that five month period, somebody pulled the curtain back and said, Hey, there's a better way. You, you really don't have to go this direction. You, there's other paths. And I now feel like it's, it's my responsibility to pay that forward for other people. And that's energizing when you can, especially a young entrepreneur that's, that's got the tiger by the tail, their business is starting to scale, but at their own, it, it's never worth trading your health, your relationships, and your identity for the success of your company. And if I can find that entrepreneur that's got it, they've got it figured out, the only missing piece is they're selling their soul to do it. And I can show them a little bit different way, like that really energizes mm. me. And I think yeah. that's our responsibility because we know, I, I was in a room last week and of 65 of some of the most successful people on the planet and we were taught we were we were laughing about how our spouses don't even really understand like what it you know they've been with us a long time so they get it but they don't really get it like the the loneliness and and that kind of stuff and how we're all like we all we know stuff that most people never had the opportunity to learn whether it's about business or about health or about life hacking, like all the things we've been exposed to. And 
it's our privilege to get to share those with others. And oftentimes our spouse bears the brunt of that because we're like, you got to learn about this biohack. You got to learn about this like gratitude practice. And we're like all over the place. But <laughs> when we can, when we can actually share that with other entrepreneurs, I think there's incredible power in that. And we are privileged and lucky and and blessed to know a lot of things that a lot of other people never got exposed to. And what a gift that is. Yeah. The weird thing is, is once is, you've seen it, you don't know that other people don't know it. That's, that's, that's an, an odd thing and trying to, you know, trying to meet people where they're at and especially, you know, on the business, on the scaling journey. Yeah. It's, that's a really tricky, um, that's a really ch- tricky challenge as well. What one of, I think one of the biggest learns going back to like partners from NECA was that, you know, we talked about for probably like a whole morning about trying to make sure that you and your partner are sort of on the same like um, tra- trajectory. You try and like nurture each other to try and help you both go on a sort of similar like growth trajectory or, you know, it, that that was so, so interesting because it's easy for one to just, you know, shoot off and leave the other behind. Right. Yeah, for sure. It, it's funny. My youngest brother got married and and I did kind of the, you know, say stuff that's going to make everyone cry part. And my, one of my other brothers, like actually by the power vested in me by the internet, you're now married. And I, I gave him three pieces of advice from experience. And, and one of the pieces of advice was um, one plus one has to equal at least two but it can never equal less than two. Mm. And if you come together and get married and lose your independence or, or try and, you know, merge two lives into one, you're really going to struggle. So one of the things as an entrepreneur that has been really important for me is to make sure that my partner has a complete independence for me. And so many times if, you know, entrepreneurs tend to be type A and, you know, we, we, sometimes end up with a spouse that's maybe a little bit less type A. And and I watched these couples come together and they were two thriving independent people before. And then all of a sudden they're one and it's really like they, they've lost their independence. That was one. Second one was, it was don't keep score. Um, I know so many couples that have not made it because, you know, I did the laundry. You got to take out the trash. Well, I took out the trash. Why didn't you walk the dog? And, you end up in this in this competition and keeping score. Um, and then the third one, and I think this goes back to to your point of, you know, trying to make sure you you, you know, you you grow together and you you sort of experience things together is if you just wake up every day and you say, what and this is both partners, not one, because if one does this and the other doesn't, catastrophe. But mm-hmm. I looked my brother and his beautiful new bride in the eye, and I said, if you both wake up every day. And your whole goal for the day is to make your partner's experience better than it was yesterday. By the way, that was our mantra with employees too. I was going to say, that's this. Yeah. I, totally have that, I used to have that as a little alarm on my phone. <laughs> yeah. This totally works. In, in yeah, yeah. Too. But if you both wake up and your whole, your whole goal is to make your partner's experience better and you both have that, you can't help but raise each other's level because mm. that's your mindset. Yeah. And if it's, what can you do for me? What's in it for me? I, me, me, me. Then you're by definition, you're going to go like this or like this. So, so that mindset, even if your partner's not going to 
totally buy into all your biohacking weirdness. Like we, as entrepreneurs, we get exposed to some really weird stuff, right? And we, we again, we know all these weird things and we want everyone else to know. Some people aren't ready for that. Like mm. they're not ready to hear about stem cell therapy and this and that. And But if you could just both set your goal to raise each other's level every day, then at least you're going to, your levels are going to move together. Your knowledge may grow apart, but you're going to level up together versus going like this. Amazing. Yeah. And we're, we're, we're running out of time. I know I, I want to talk a bit about, um, you know, the selling process. I, we've actually got a question from Sharon asking, you know, can you tell us about the processes that are key to have in place to successfully scale a business? So in, in less than like a couple of minutes, are there any sure. like key processes, like non-negotiables? Yeah. So scaling up is built on four ideas, people, strategy, execution, and cash. You've, you've got to get really clear on those four disciplines. Make sure you've got the right people doing the right things right. Jim Collins said that. The number one discipline that we teach that I think A is non-negotiable and B is the fastest hack to building a successful company is the daily huddle. And the daily huddle is super simple. Every employee, certainly every salaried employee, every day is in a huddle. For us, it was our 13 leadership team then they would go with their direct reports and then they would go one level down. So three, three sets of levels, three meetings. What's your number one priority? You would go around. And if there's 11 people, it should be an 11 minute meeting. If there's nine people, nine minute meeting, no more. Great. Go around. What's your number one priority for the day? Everyone would just say it. no discussion. No, like what's your number one priority for the day? Two or three key OKRs you're going to report out on or KPIs if you use that vernacular and then one more round of what are you stuck anywhere are, are there any roadblocks that you need to remove no discussion i may have you you and i might be in a huddle you might have a roadblock and i might say hey catch up with me after i can help you with that but we're not going to take everyone's 38 minutes of time to fix it mm. 11 people 11 minutes nine people nine minutes once around what's your number one priority couple of for the group okrs not everyone does two just the group two or three what are you stuck on? And that's it. You move on. If yeah, you right. can build that discipline, there's more to it. It's in the book scaling up. There's more to it. But if you can just build that discipline, you will know as a leader more in a week than you typically learn in a quarter or a year because you get to see how your people are prioritizing. They each get to read each other's headlines and everyone's aligned on what's it. It eliminates if you have. I don't know. No one ever told me that. In your business, if people are saying no one ever told me that, bye bye. That goes away with the daily huddle. So yeah, that, yeah. that's like that's, the fastest hack I have. I've I've got twenty seven thousand more, but that nah, would be it's brilliant. That's brilliant. It, it is, uh, and I've experienced like the um, how effective it can be. I've also experienced the problem of deviating from what. So you just got to stay. It's a what meeting. What not how not anything else. Just what. Yeah. Start at an odd time. Ours started at 9.05, end exactly on time. Even if someone's mid, you end on time. <laughs> you, will build, you will build the discipline to go fast enough. It might take Okay. Well, in the interest of trying to end on time, I would really like you to give like your key bits of advice on um, anyone looking to sell up. And that, that could be in the next five years, in the next year, or in the next month, far away. All right. I'll do this in three minutes. Number one. Know what your industry average multiples are. Know what your company, uh, what your industry trades at. 
and then put that aside and know that your business is worth what one buyer is willing to pay at one point in time. So you should know your industry multiple to know if you want or lost, but don't get locked in on that. Find a buyer that's willing to value something over and above. And I'm going to try and do this in two minutes. You, the Rembrandts in the attic story. Everybody has Rembrandts in the attic. Imagine you're going to buy a house listed for a million dollars. There's three bidders. You're one of the three. We all agree it's worth a million. I'm going to bid. You're going to bid. And someone else is going to bid. The seller doesn't know. I don't know. The other bidder doesn't know. But you wandered up into the attic of that house. And behind a post was an original Rembrandt that you know is worth $20 million. The house is only worth a million. You are not going to be the losing bidder for that house. You're not going to outbid me. Even if I bid $2 million, you'll bid three because you know you get the Rembrandt in the attic. Every business we've ever worked with has Rembrandts in their attic. It might be their customer list, a piece of software they made. It might be the industry they serve. It might be a core process they have, even the team that they've built. And there is someone else that wants that Rembrandt that is willing to come along and say, your, your business, your house is worth a million, but I'll give you 19 million because I get the Rembrandt that's in the attic. It's your job to know because the guy that sold the house didn't know it was up there because he never looked in the attic. It's your job to know what the Rembrandts are in your attic and make sure that when buyers come along, you understand how they see the Rembrandts in your attic and the value that they assign to them. Now that's a, that's a two day course. (laughs) That's that's Rembrandt's in the attic in 90 seconds. So so that is the most important piece of advice in selling a business. There's the financial value and then the value of all your strategic stuff, which is all your Rembrandt's. Yeah. And you're, you're also like representation of, you know, is, is can be super helpful, right? If you, uh, if you don't, um... yeah, yeah. I mean, and listen, if anyone's got questions on that, reach out to us. Kristen Cop, my chief chief of staff, she can set up some time. I'm happy to walk someone through that process because I I typically in a half hour to an hour conversation help entrepreneurs, even like on the path, like ready to exit, find millions of extra dollars in value. I can't tell you how many 20 minute conversations I've had where we unlock like, oh yeah, I didn't think of that. And $10 million later, like in increased value that, yeah, it happens all the time. Amazing. It happened literally last week. Great. Well, thank you, John. Um, we're we're out, out of time, basically. Uh, is there any books? Like, well, one thing, one book, and when are you writing your book? <laughs> it's uh, It's in my phone, I think, in a bunch of notes. It's, yeah. This has to be the year. This has to be the year. I say it every year, but this has to be the year. I'm writing it down. Book. I'm going to hold you to it. I'm going to message yep. you. In Here you December. go. Book. In fact, I'm going to... Excellent. I'm going to put a book a meeting in to like to challenge you uh, to, yeah, to read the draft in December. I'll take that. That's fair. Um, so, yeah, look, I mean, I think uh, there's so much to take from what you've talked about today, John, and, and really appreciate that. And it's so hard to fit it all into, a, a, um, you know, one one hour um i i really like the saying it's not what we've achieved in life but who we've become and like entrepreneurship is you know a way to really understand like who, who we are and what we'd like to become um so so thank you um i, I as a few few key bits like takeaways i think is like if you have a dollar spend it on your team i love that um you know i think getting representation like people aren't skilled like it, it selling so if you're going to go on that journey think about that um 
And yeah, I think check in as well. Check in if you're working really hard, like just check it's not an avoidance or something deeper, like because it's, you know, it's really easy to do to just, you know, find ways of not facing like reality. So 100%. Yeah, I mean, and on the on the help side, you you might sell one or two companies in a lifetime and sophisticated buyers might buy 27 companies this year. The playing field is it's like it's like you've never played golf and your first opponent's Tiger Woods. It's it's a really unlevel playing field. So. <laughs> uh, well, look, thank you so much, John. Um, thank you, everyone, for joining today. Uh, yeah, thank you, John. I hope everyone feels slightly wiser this Wednesday as a result of joining. So, Thanks for take, having me. Yeah, thanks, John. Take care. Bye. Cheers.